to start out and talk about you personally. N.T. Is it really stand for New Testament? Is that your name? Nope. <laughs> Tell, um, um, what, what is your real name? Nicholas Thomas. Nicholas Thomas. And give us, we're going to start out just personal information. Where were you born? Oh, a little town called Morpeth in Northumberland. It's about 15 miles north of Newcastle-on-Tyne. And uh, so in the northeast corner of, of England, uh, Northumberland, that county, is the English equivalent of Maine. It's the top bit on the right. And so it's about um, a couple of hours' drive from Edinburgh in Scotland if you go up and across the border. So uh, I grew up in the northeast. And I, I won't be so rude as to ask how old you are, but when were you born? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, about 10 years before you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> So you're a child of the 50s. No. Uh, <laughs> that'll work. 1948. Yeah, 1940. Yeah, yeah that's about actually it's 12 years before yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, you were 48. I was 1960. Yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. We're we're young. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that's we're, true. Yeah. Miss Helen, would you wave your cane? <laughs> 93 years yeah, old, yeah, 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 yeah. okay? <laughs> um, I'm always curious, and I think everybody else may be too, tell us a little bit about your education and your growing up, because okay. it's different over there than it is here in the colonies. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's colder for one thing, especially. Um, yeah, I grew up in a very ordinary middle-class home. My dad ran a family business which had been in the family for since 1797, actually. I assumed that I was going to take it on from him. He was fifth generation. I would have been sixth. And he had no intention that I should do that unless I wanted to. And so he kind of gave me the freedom. My mother's family had a lot of clergy, Anglican clergy, and I was very used to going to church every Sunday and to there being clergy around and seeing family members preaching, leading services, etc. It was a very easy thing for me then as a, as a young boy at the age of about seven or eight both to have quite a deep experience of knowing how much Jesus had loved me to die for me, and also just being aware, not as a choice, but just as something you know about yourself, like, you know, I like apples and not pears or whatever. No, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to be ordained. That was just something I knew about myself from very early on. There were lots of other odd decisions later on, but so that came with. And I went to a very traditional uh, first school, then uh, second school, what we would call a public school, what you would call a private school, united by a common language as usual, um, divided by a common language. And uh, <laughs> I, I made the decision quite early on to specialize in classics. I love the ancient world, and I had the chance to learn Latin from the age of eight and Greek from the age of 13. My regret is I didn't start Greek earlier because uh, you had to catch up with the people who'd done it sooner. But that then gave me the platform for doing classics as an undergraduate degree. Um, and most of what I did when I was um, from the ages of, I don't know, 7 to 18, was to play as much music and as much sport as I possibly could. And studying was kind of the necessary evil that you had to do um, when, you, when you were forced to. But then as soon as you were let out, it was either back to the sports field or back to a piano or a guitar or whatever. So, so are you a musician? Are you uh, a, a very bad musician now, but I, I, played, I played a lot in my early days. My, I kind of passed it on to my kids. Once my kids got onto the piano and started doing stuff, I couldn't ever get on, so I just stopped practicing, sadly. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so uh, uh, I'm intrigued for just a moment. Sports. Do you still keep up with sports? The only sport I now play is golf. And yes, I play that very badly too. Um, okay. I, I, I only play maybe you know once, twice a month, which isn't enough. Uh, however, if you live in the vicinity of St. Andrews, you have mm, 10 world-class golf courses within half an hour's drive. Yeah. Um, it would be silly not to take advantage. So, um, uh, yeah. so that, but but that, that is the only thing I do now. Occasionally, walking in the Scottish mountains, which I've always loved, um, a bit too heavy for that. I need to lose weight. I need to get some tips from you how to do that. <laughs> not for me. I get them from someone else. Uh, I did not eat that donut. But I'll tell you, no, seriously. The um, <laughs> you can you can tell he's a Baptist. It's Lent and he's still eating chocolate. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> that's true. But I gave up liver and onions for Lent this year. Um, the uh, uh, in fact, I've given them up for life. Um, now I can't talk because I've got this candy bar in my mouth. Um, no, so. You went to school now, uh, so you're not like a. Our, our class has a kindred affiliation with uh, St. John Newlands uh, in in Hull, England. So I thought maybe you were a Hull Tiger fan. No, no, that's interesting. St. John Newlands, that that's an Anglican church. Yes, yeah, Melvin yeah, yeah. Tinker is the vicar there. Yes, um, my brother-in-law Ted Crofton was curate there in 1974, something like that. Curiously, yeah. Yeah. wow. Uh, he's now he's now retired. He and he and my sister uh, retired a few years back. But yeah, so I I do know that church, but not for a long time. Hull is one of those towns that's off to the east side of the county uh, of the county and country, and it's not a place you go to unless you're going there. It's not a place you go on the way anywhere, or unless you're going to get a ship to cross the North Sea. Yeah, I, I was taking a taxi to the train station to go to Hull uh, recently, and the taxi driver said to me, uh, where are you going? And I said, to Hull. And he said, why? Yeah. And I said, and I that said, well, be because I've got a friend there and or a number of friends there. And he said, did you see the TV show To Hull and Back? <laughs> and uh, evidently there are quite a number of things that it's not held in the highest regard necessarily by the, the taxi drivers in London. Anyway, um, okay, so a couple more personal questions before we move on. Tell us a little bit about your um, education when you left uh, home and went to university? Oh, okay. I went to Oxford in 1968, I guess. Um, it was a good, good time to be a student, 68. You know, there was all sorts of, of exciting things happening. And I studied classics as a first degree, which in Oxford is ancient history and philosophy. And you actually do the philosophy through to the modern period as well. So it's a kind of combined degree. And I, that was when I really discovered that there was such a thing as the academic life, which had been previously a closed book to me. I just thought you studied the stuff and then you went and did a job. Um, but no, actually, I found both the ancient history and the philosophy very compelling. And so even though I knew I then wanted to study theology and go into the ministry, I thought, I don't want to leave this studying, this finding out about more and more stuff in the ancient world and how philosophy works behind. So when I then did a second bachelor's degree in theology, um, got that in 1973, I then um, started working for a doctorate. In those days, you didn't do a separate master's. You just plunged straight into the doctoral program. And uh, But then I got ordained around the same time, got a job in Oxford, um, which enabled me to carry on doing research while starting ordained ministry. And so um, it was a bit of a 
bit of a rough ride um, in terms of starting family life and so on, but here we are. We made it through that. And your wife, Maggie, wasn't able to join you this trip. Regrettably, we were hoping to have Maggie here, and she wanted to be here, but she had some dental work, and and it's not a good time to travel. So um, uh, how'd you meet her? Oh, we met through singing together in a Christian folk concert when we were students. Basically, I had a song that needed a girl's voice, or at least having seen Maggie, I decided that this song needed a girl's voice. Um, and, and she, she perhaps foolishly agreed to sing with me. And though she, she was actually dating somebody else at the time, but friends, friends who saw us singing together told us a year or so later, ah, we saw it coming right there. So there was something going on. Um, Lennon and McCartney, well, Tom and Maggie. <laughs> it was just kismet. Well, well, something, yes. <laughs> or kiss something. Kiss something. Okay. Yes, um, yes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry she's not here because she, she hates me talking about her in public. Um, she reminds me of things. I, I'll tell you one thing. I have a cartoon on the wall of my office where, as you come in through the door, it's right there. And it's a bishop driving away from church with his wife. And the bishop is saying to his wife, have you considered how much more effective my sermon would have been if you hadn't shouted, ha? <laughs> yeah. I'm always amazed Pastor David lets Beverly sit on the front row. Um, the uh, uh, um, This is interesting. So singing in a group, play guitar, play piano, music as an interest. What's your favorite hymn? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Just to sing to yourself. Yeah. Goodness. I've always loved For All the Saints. You know, How does for all that the go? Would you sing yeah. us a few uh, bars? Uh, no, because this is live streamed. I won't get the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should sing us a few bars. But, well, but, I would if I knew it. You oh, picked oh, one you I didn't don't. know. Oh, really? It's a it's a great hymn which takes you through the story. So many of the classic hymns have a narrative to them, which so many of the modern songs don't. And when you make Christianity non-narratival, you deconstruct something. But there's 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 two or three others that I j- jump into my head when you said that. I had I. You, you need to know none of these questions have I any idea what's coming. So this is just what you get off the top of my head. Um, there's that lovely one, dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Um, we clothe us in, in our, our rightful, rightful minds, minds pure in pure lives, our service mind, yeah. in deeper reverence, praise. Yeah, yeah correct. Um, we sang that a lot growing up. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a wonderful hymn. There's a hymn we sang um, when we lived in Canada, which we did for five years. Um, uh, and I'm now blanking on it because that's what jet lag does, but I'll come back to it. Um, but so no, I, I mean all the Wesley hymns and the Watts hymns and the and the great hymns and uh, there's some that you some that you would know and some that you wouldn't. But those those ones come to mind. Yeah, if I'm walking down the street and just wanted to pray about something, sometimes actually having a hymn which you're quietly singing in your head is a good way of holding something in prayer and working through it and so on, as well as just an enriching for oneself rather than letting one's thoughts go random. Yeah. Um, can you give us a brief thumbnail of your um, professional life? In other words, you get out of school, you've been ordained into the Anglican Church. Um, what, what have, and we know you lived in Canada for a few years. You, you're a prolific author. Give us, though, a, a feel of what you've done professionally when you've taught, where you've preached, how you became a bishop, 
etc. Yeah, yeah. Oh goodness. Um, okay, brief. Um, one of the good things about the Anglican Church, the way it was when I was ordained into it, was that there was a a valuing of the combination of academic and pastoral ministries. One of my tutors at seminary said, you're going to have to choose whether you want to be an academic or a pastor. And I, sitting there in his office, I didn't say it to him, but I decided then and there that I didn't want to choose, that I wanted to do both. And I just couldn't give either of those up. And there have been several jobs which I've been able to do where I've been able to combine them. For instance, being a student chaplain, um, for a while in Oxford, for a while in Cambridge, and then after Montreal, back in Oxford again. But combining that with being what you would call an associate professor in New Testament. So I'm teaching New Testament in the university, but also there's a, a, an undergraduate college with maybe 300 students, and during term you have services on Sunday and some during the midweek, and you're being a student pastor, but then you're dashing off to give a lecture or a tutorial or whatever. So it was that, that rich combination but it's actually quite a time-consuming combination, so that for the first mm, 15 or 20 years of my um, ministry after ordination and after my doctorate, I didn't write very much, but I was teaching a great deal. And in the Oxford and Cambridge tutorial system, you meet one-on-one -on -one with students who write a paper and they read it to you for 15 minutes and you spend the rest of the hour discussing it and explaining what they didn't understand and so on. And I think that doing that again and again and again and trying to find ways to explain things to students who were bright but hadn't got much information about the stuff yet. You know, they could process things if you gave it to them. But I think that gave me a platform so that then when I started to write more seriously, roughly when I turned 40 in the late 80s, uh, something went click and I started to, to... I had written one or two things before, but um, then I found that there was a lot of material that I'd been, been building up which I could then draw on, and that's, that's continued. So... Then when it came time, which was a surprise to us, but I was asked to go and be dean of a cathedral, Litchfield in the middle of England, in 1993, and we went and did that for five years, and then they, the way they ran cathedrals changed, and I wasn't going to have nearly so much time for my own research. And so we went to Westminster Abbey for three years, which was fascinating, um, as a canon at Westminster, living right across the street from the Houses of Parliament and so on. <clears throat> and uh, that, that, I think, you know... Don't you say in, in America that everyone ought to live in New York once but leave before you get too hard? You live in San Francisco but leave before you get too soft? Well, with us, it's... <laughs> is that is I, that right? No, all I've ever heard is is that Lubbock is the hub of the plains and blessed are those who live there. Oh, well, there you are. Okay. <laughs> one day, one day. One day I'll get there. Not yet. But, but London is like that. You know, you should live in London once and just find out how it works and then quickly get the train north. Um, so, so when I was then asked to go back to my home territory, which is the northeast as Bishop of Durham, that was just a wonderful one. I know, I know that place. I know the people. I know how that part of the country works. There's a lot of people elsewhere in England who don't know how that part of the country works. I was thrilled and very, very privileged. And Durham had a tradition, had a tradition of scholar bishops like Lightfoot and Westcott, and to, uh, to, to follow in their footsteps tremblingly was just an amazing, amazing privilege. Then, of course, the bishop job gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's any job you do that you're having fun doing, it kind of develops and takes more time. And eventually, um, seven years ago, St. Andrews came knocking on the door saying, we think you should be our next New Testament prof. And we thought, no, don't be silly. We're in Durham. This is what you do till retirement. And then they kept on saying it, and I kept on thinking, well, actually, I'm not going to get any time to write over the next 
year or two, and I need to finish some of these projects. So we went, fatal mistake, we went and actually looked around and asked questions, and all the lights turned green. I said to somebody yesterday, in the Christian life, you get the guidance you need when you need it, not when you want it, um, and usually a lot later than when you want it. But you get it, and on that occasion, it was just bang, bang, bang. This is what you're going to do now, and we kind of... Okay, this wasn't the game plan. Most people our age move to be closer to the grandchildren. We move to be further away from them. Why do we do that? Um, that's just how it goes. So, um, but I love St. Andrews. It's a great place. And the golf is good, as I say. <laughs> okay, before we leave the personal and transition to something else, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, a question. But to set the question up, <clears throat> I need you to tell a story for us. You told the story, if, you're, if this is an okay story to tell and put on the internet, and if it's not, just uh, <laughs> pivot. Um, you told me the story about uh, the uh, uh, Archbishop of, of uh, the Anglican Church, uh, or Jeremy, uh, meeting the Pope. The oh, oh pope. Th- this, is, this is now a famous story, because Justin Welby told this, uh, and it is recorded and, and, and okay, so on. Okay, so you can tell so, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. It was extraordinary that the new Archbishop of Canterbury became Archbishop just after the new Pope had become Pope. So they were both real surprises. Nobody expected an Argentinian Pope. And Justin had only been a bishop for one year when they made him Archbishop. And so both of them had been catapulted into this sudden position of international prominence where, you know, they're in newspapers, they're all over the place, etc. And Justin goes to see the Pope a month or two in, because that's one of the things you do. Major church leader, you go and meet each other. And so they're ushered in, and there's translators there, and I've had this from the translators as well as from Justin. Um, and the Pope and Justin Welby sit, and the Archbishop sitting opposite each other in the table, and they stare at each other, and the Pope starts to giggle. And he giggles, and Justin gets the giggles as well. And they are both just shaking with laughter for a minute or two. And, and the translators are kind of looking at them. And Justin said, of course, I was laughing in English. He was laughing in Spanish. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and it was just this sense of the crazy things God does. It's like, what am I doing here? And they're both thinking this simultaneously <laughs> and realizing that the other one is thinking it. And then the Pope said, among other things, he said, we should write an encyclical together. Now, if you don't know the Catholic and the Anglican worlds, that is huge. The thought that two leaders would say, now, what is there that we should be working on that we can work on together? And what they've agreed they're working on at the moment is uh, working to abolish child slavery in the world. It's a major social ill. And and you, you imagine these two huge communions getting together, saying, we're going to put our, put our energy and wisdom behind that. Fantastic. But the fact that they both came together at that point was both a wonderful bit of divine planning and just very funny. And you have to laugh when God does funny things. And so I ask you just that story to set up this question. Where have you chuckled at what God has done in your oh, life? Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Oh, ha, 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 ha. And he's got no warning on any of this. I told him, he said, well, what are we going to, what are you going to ask me about? What are you going to, I need to prepare. I said, no, you don't. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I mean, God does have a sense of humor. Um, Clearly, for instance, I'm sitting at my desk in Durham about 10 years ago, and the secretary says, I've got somebody on the phone. I'm not sure I got the name right, but it sounded like Francis Collins. And I'm thinking, Francis Collins, he's one of the great scientists of our day. It can't be him. must be somebody else. So I go through to my office to take the call, 
it is the Francis Collins. And Francis Collins is calling me up because he's read one of my books and wants me to take part in the Biologos meetings, which actually is one of the reasons I'm here in Houston this week. That's happening next week. And uh, I am just astonishingly flattered that he knows my name, let alone has read my stuff, let alone wants me to come and dialogue with him. And we have this great conversation over the phone, and we end up um, then at the Biologos meeting. And I had no idea that Francis also played the guitar. He's actually very good. And uh, so not that meeting, but the second one, he said, you have to bring your guitar, have to bring your guitar. And so Francis then and I start playing our guitars together. And why have a scientist and a theologian at an academic meeting and we're writing silly songs about Genesis and so on? And you just think, this is a wonderful bit of serendipity, of celebration, of something totally unplanned. We could never have dreamt it. I mean, he plays a lot. I hardly play at all these days, so I have to practice I borrowed a guitar for this week. Um, and uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. And you say, thank you, Lord. This is an extra bonus, and I'm, I'm delighted. Okay, we're going to shift gears now yeah. away from the personal, and I want to talk for a moment about the book that uh, you were discussing in the panel discussion on Friday. Uh, you've got a book, the, the Dawn of... The Day the Revolution the Began. The Day the Revolution Began. He hasn't finished it yet. That's why he doesn't know the title. Yeah. Well, that's the one part I read. Uh, no, I, uh, no, I've read the book now. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things that I found fascinating in the book was the way you set up the story of Genesis 1, through, and I want to write this down because I think people will, will track better if we've got this written down. Genesis 1 through 12, the, the Genesis, if you will, before Abraham, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and the rest of the Old Testament in essence. Um, so we'll just label it as Genesis 12 through uh, Malachi or, or Chronicles, Chronicles, depending upon yeah, how you order you, your scrolls, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, through uh, end of OT. You put those together and you say that, that one, in a sense, is a picture of the other. Do you remember that in the book? Yeah, yeah, sort Would of. Would you talk I mean, to us about that a little bit? It's over a year since I wrote the book, so and I've written one or two other things since then. But I didn't, and, and of course, Genesis 1 to 11, really, is the Old Testament of the Old Testament. And 12 is where then the new story starts, although they, they overlap, as stories do. They interlock. Um, it, was, it was a real aha moment for me some years back when I realized this, that most scholars now think that whenever the Pentateuch, the first five books, were originally written, they were pulled together and edited uh, and became what how we now see them probably in the time of the exile, the Babylonian exile, and different theories about that, but that would be a, a common assumption. And I'm suddenly realizing, here's a story about a couple given a wonderful garden with tasks to do, God to obey, a tree of life in the midst of the garden, and then they blow it and they get kicked out. And everybody in the exile telling that story is nodding their heads and saying, yes, that's our story. We were the people of God who were put in the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and we had the tree of life, the temple in the midst of the garden, and all we had to do was obey and worship, and that would be fine, and we blew it, and we worshipped idols instead, and we've been kicked out. So that the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and being kicked out is the story of Israel in the Holy Land, and then being sent off to Babylon. And you can tell because the stories resonate 
because in Genesis 4 through 11, things go from bad to worse. And even though God rescues Noah, things still go from bad to worse. And you, they end up building the Tower of Babel, Babylon, exactly. So you either have the Promised Land or you have Babel, Babylon. And so that pre-story is the pre-story of the whole story of the people of God. And then the rest of the Pentateuch, and it's fascinating, Deuteronomy. I'd always thought, well, Genesis, Deuteronomy, this is a lovely story. Here we are, creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, and then here they are about to come into the Promised Land. But the end of Deuteronomy is not a happy moment because the end of Deuteronomy very emphatically says, here's the covenant, obey and you'll live and stay in the land, disobey, which, by the way, I know you're going to do, and you'll be kicked out and it'll all go bad. And that then God will actually bring in Gentiles to make you ashamed. This is the Song of Moses in in Deuteronomy 32. And Josephus, writing in the first century, writing the generation after Paul, says that Deuteronomy 32 is Moses' prophecy about things that have happened and that are happening in our own day. So Josephus sees the Pentateuch not simply as the backstory of Israel, but as the whole story in a nutshell, prophetically told. And so once you realize that, you've got Genesis 1 to 11, then you've got the whole of the Pentateuch, and then you've got the whole of the Old Testament, and they're kind of recapitulating themselves. And then you get the Gospel writers. This is where the story really starts, of course. How long do you want me to go on? Uh, no, um, no, no, uh, so, no, 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 um, no. This is where you, get, where you get the Gospels telling the story of Jesus as the story of how that long story of Israel reached its climax. And unless you read the Gospels as the story of how that narrative got sorted out, how exile was undone, but how the promises of God to Abraham finally got fulfilled, then you're just not reading the story. It's like having a song with only the alto part being sung. And you think, what's actually the tune here? And what's the bass line? How does this work? Um, That's what we we need to read the Gospels as four-part harmony. And that's one of the most important bits. All right, so I'm charting this out because I sometimes see better in pictures. Mm-hmm. Let's make this a little bit bigger so everybody yeah. can see it. You've got so, it uh, so do I, but, uh, um, there in front of you. So in Genesis 1 through 11, is it fair to say that you see paradise through the exile? Yep, uh, yep. Rest of the Old Testament, you see the promised land yeah. into the exile. Yeah, and, and the really interesting thing about this is that the human vocation in Genesis 1 and 2 is what is later called the royal priesthood. That is to say, these humans are image bearers, and the image is the angled mirror. It isn't reflecting God back to God. It's the angled mirror reflecting God out into the world and the worship of the rest of creation back to God. And the image is the last thing you put in a temple when you make it, and Genesis 1 is a temple, the heaven and earth creation, and the humans are the image in that temple. And so when it all goes horribly wrong, that's when the heaven and earth thing falls apart. But the whole purpose, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, is to bring heaven and earth back together again with renewed humans in the middle of it, which is done by the new human himself, Jesus. But um, all throughout that story, you've got these ideas of the human task is be fruitful and multiply and look after creation and make stuff happen. And it's about uh, the human task to have a family and the human task to have a community. And so when God wants 
to rescue creation. He calls a childless nomad called Abraham. It's one of my favorite moments in the whole biblical story. This is sheer grace. God wants to make a new family, so he calls a couple who are far too old and have no children. God wants to make a worldwide um, community which will be for the whole of creation, and he chooses somebody who hasn't even got one acre to his name. And that's just wonderful. And it's out of that and him believing those promises that everything else grows. Okay. So we've got, yeah, that's an amen. And so we've got the... You know you're in the South. Thank you. (laughs) Genesis 1 through 11, paradise to exile with humans being the image of God. Yeah. Rest of the Old Testament, promised land into exile with the temple being the... I hate to say the image of God because God said don't put an image in there, but the meeting place. The temple is a meeting place, but the temple is also the small working model of creation. I said yesterday or the day before at the library, the temple, the the, the word scholars use is microcosmos, which means a little world. So creation itself, heaven and earth together, is the ultimate temple. And there are passages in the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to fill the whole creation with my knowledge or my love, as the waters cover the sea. God wants to flood the whole of creation with his own presence and glory. And as the, as the pilot project for that, he gives the Israelites in the wilderness the tabernacle, and he fills that with his glory, not so that it's a safe place to escape away from the rest of the world, but it's a sign to the rest of the world of what he's going to do for the rest of the world. And then the temple in Jerusalem, the same. Of course they can go to the bad. They can become idolatrous as well, and they do, and that's why the temple is destroyed. Um, But then in the Gospels, this strand comes through. There's these different layer-upon-layer narratives, and they all work together. And in the Gospels, John 2, Jesus in the temple, uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it. And they say, what are you talking about? And John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. And it's very clear in John, but it is actually also clear once you understand the signals in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, that Jesus is the new temple in person. And that then, when in Acts, Jesus ascends, this is the joining of heaven and earth in his own human risen body, And when the Spirit descends, this is the joining of heaven and earth through the powerful breath of the Spirit. This is the new creation. That's why all the controversies in Acts are about temples, um, uh, ultimately with the temple in Jerusalem, but also Athens and and, uh, uh, Ephesus and so on. Okay, so, uh, and and maybe I take this in a different way than you do. Uh, I don't think I do, but but I want to walk through it in some of my ideas and see if um, uh, I'm understanding you, or if not, if I'm offering something additional. So I I would, is it fair to tell everybody we're talking about what we can call temple theology in a sense here? If you want to put a label on this. Which different people take differently, but but there's something going on there, which, which we in the Protestant West have screened out, because Protestantism was a reaction against Catholicism, so they did church buildings and all that stuff, and, and we sort of don't. I mean, we do, but we pretend we don't. So we've not reflected about it theologically. Um, you know, I had no theology of sacred space growing up. Sacred space meant absolutely nothing to me, even though I was an Anglican. Um, it was just a building on the street where you go to sing hymns and say prayers and stuff. Right. Um, but I now realize that actually God wants to colonize creation, and that that starts with... Abraham, um, 
climaxes in Jesus and by the Spirit. Yeah, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that isn't just Christ in me and you and you. It's you, plural, because God in the early church is planting little cells of glory-bearing communities around the world so that they will be the hope of the glory when the earth shall be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the sign of the future. Okay, so as, as I would take this and see if you think I'm being fair with this or, or if you want to, to correct me in front of all of my friends. <clears throat> as, as I would take this, I would say that the temple is, is as, as I was indicating in a sense, a meeting place of God and humanity yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. And so to the extent that the creation and the cosmos was the temple in Genesis yeah. 1 through 11, you've got God meeting with, with Adam in the garden and he walks with him and he tells him to name the animals yeah, and, he, yeah. and he makes him and provides him a spouse. And he got that, that is the meeting place. Yeah. And, and it's just nature is the meeting place. Yeah, yeah. And then in the story of the Old Testament, you've got the meeting place first in the tabernacle yeah. and then ultimately, and ultimately in Jerusalem and, and the temple, and you've got that, and the disruption of the temple coincides with the people in exile. Yeah, and with God himself and, leaving. Yeah, Exactly. And then you've got along comes Jesus, and you've got that passage in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and, and dwelt or tabernacled, mm-hmm. uh, pitched its tent, if you will, among us. Yeah. And there's a bold claim that now Jesus exactly. is the place where God in humanity meet. Absolutely. A hundred percent. This is, um, uh, he obviously just been reading one of my books. This is this precisely, um, precise, precisely yeah, how it goes. NT. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and, but and the only extra thing I would say to that, and I'm sure you intended this as well, is that John 1 is a retelling of the story of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. Right. And the equivalent point in John 1 to the creation of humans in the divine image in Genesis 1 is verse 14. <clears throat> so we've got to the point where God creates humans in his own image. So that though John 1 doesn't use the word image at that point, somebody who's tracking with how the story works will see, aha, the word became flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled in our midst. This is the genuine human. And you go to the end of John, sixth day, Friday, Pilate says, behold the man. That's not accidental. And so on the seventh day after the crucifixion, the Sabbath, God rests in the tomb so that on the eighth day, the Sunday, new creation begins. Lest we have any doubt of what he's saying about John tracking the creation story in John 1 and and verse 14 becoming the essence of the image passage. It begins, in the beginning was the word in our Kehen Hologos, uh, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he was in the beginning. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the, what we would call the Septuagint, the, the language begins with the precise same Greek words. Those were the words used to translate what the Hebrews would have called barishit, the, 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 the in the beginning. Um, but look what happens. The life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness. You've got the little interlude about John. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is all creation language. God created light. Said, let there Absolutely. be light. God said the word. Let there be light. 
I mean, all of this language is exactly, tracking Genesis. Exactly. And the same then comes through with the new creation in John 20, where the, John 20 begins um, on the first day of the week. It's not by accident. And likewise, verse 19, he repeats it in case we didn't get it. The evening of that day, the first day of the week. And it's very early. While it was yet dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tree. He's tracking these same themes, the light and the darkness. It's, and it's just and a wonderful John is balance. the only one, and it's also in John 20, who has Mary mistaking Jesus for a, a gardener, gardener exactly. which was exactly. Adam's job. Exactly. It, it okay. was the right mistake to make. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, the, this wonderful the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's like... I mean, John is, John is full of this theme of new creation, but actually once you see it in John, you see it all over the place in the other Gospels as well. And it's as though John is drawing out the significance, not, not saying, no, they got it wrong, I'm doing it differently, drawing out the theological and narratival significance of what's there in the others. Okay, so in that regard, if we're looking at John and we're looking at this, and can, we're just going to have some fun with John for a moment with the okay, class. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So this is John chapter 1, the end of the chapter when John's calling his, uh, his apostles. Jesus decides to go to Galilee, finds Philip and says, follow me. Philip's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, we found him of whom Moses in the Torah, which is going to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, don't get wrapped up into the legal code. The Torah here, the law, includes the stories of Genesis, whom Moses, and Moses in the sense that the Jews would have seen Moses responsible for these books. Moses in the law, and then also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Now Nathanael comes toward him, and Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Now, if you are a Jew, and you're reading this, and you're plugged into the creation and the, the, the Genesis stories, you're going to immediately recognize the story of Jacob here as the Israelite in whom there was guile until he becomes Israel and, and the guile is gone. So hold with me here if you're following. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Because <laughs> Such a cheeky question. Yeah. I, I suspect Nathaniel may have been thinking about Israel, not the nation, the gentleman, the man. I suspect he saw that Jesus had understood what Nathaniel had been sitting under the fig tree thinking about, perhaps the story of Jacob and the latter. Jacob, the Israelite, in whom was guile, and then Nathaniel, in the Israelite, in whom is no guile. And Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel's blown away that Jesus understood Nathaniel had been contemplating the story of, of Jacob at Bethel. And he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus says, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. You'll see greater things. You'll see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man as opposed to the latter. That yeah, Jacob yeah, was yeah, dreaming exactly, about this. Exactly. This is the meeting place of heaven and earth. Right. Jesus. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought this passage up. This, this is a, a happy, undesigned coincidence. Um, I was working on this just a week or two ago uh, with a colleague, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating why the Son of Man here um, clearly 
Jacob's ladder is a temple image. Once you understand how temple imagery works, you see it all over the place. Actually, Noah's Ark is a temple image. This is the safe place riding on the waters like the new creation, the, the creation on, on the waters, etc. Uh, by the way, we've, we've missed out the Exodus, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Yeah, the Exodus is one of the key points in the controlling narrative all the way through. Yeah. But we'll, is, we'll get yeah, to that yeah, we're, in a minute, but keep going okay. on this. Well, we'll get to the Exodus in a second. It's a very odd passage. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man because it is a temple image. So how come the Son of Man has to do with the temple? Um, what, what, you know, we know the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew's Gospel. He never says the Son of Man is Lord of the temple. On the other hand, I think there are several passages which hint exactly that, and this is one of them. Because in the next passage, we get in John chapter 2, Immediately after this, and remember there are no chapter divisions, or, or indeed verse divisions, or indeed word divisions in, in, the, in the original. Yeah, we, get the, we get the wedding at Cana, and the wedding at Cana is, of course, itself a Genesis image. Here is the man and the woman as the seal and the celebration of creation, and here we've got new creation, and so it's a wedding like the wedding of heaven and earth, etc., etc. But then in the second half of John 2, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and it's Passover time, and what does he do? He goes into the temple, and we know the story well. Um, it's, it occurs towards the end of the Synoptic Gospels, but there's this very similar story in John 2, and we won't worry about whether Jesus did it twice or five times or whatever. But in John 2, it says he went into the temple and found the people who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the people changing money, and he, you know what he did, he made a whip of cords, and he threw them all out of the temple the sheep and the oxen. Yeah, let's show that to so that they get um, that. Absolutely. Here, the sheep and the oxen. Yeah, but the reason um. we're showing you this, the re <laughs> here we are. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason we're, we're doing this okay. is you mentioned the Septuagint, so I thought you were up for that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, Now, it won't occur to you, but one of the most famous and beloved psalms for Second Temple Jews is Psalm 8, okay? And there's, Psalm 8 is, is a creation psalm. Oh, Lord, Lord, our Lord, Lord how, how excellent yeah. is thy name in all the world, etc. And then it goes on, uh, when I consider the heavens the work of thy fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him, you've made him little lower than the angels to crown him with glory and honor, putting all things in subjection under his feet. What's the next line? Crown of glory to rule over all creation. Well, it is, but it's more specific than that. It's here you go. Well, don't do this to me. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, I've got to do it from the start. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic yeah. is your name yeah. in all the earth. Oh, all sheep and oxen all and the sheep, beasts of the field. All sheep and oxen, and it's right. specifically to Proverta Kaitus Boas. It's the same it's phrase the same that you have word. here. And when John has said it first, he said they were selling oxen and sheep. But here, when, when Jesus is showing his sovereignty over them, it's the sheep and the oxen. It's a direct echo of Psalm 8. If you think that's far-fetched, which some people undoubtedly will, actually this is very often how the New Testament refers to the Old Testament, elusively, but pulling an entire context with it. If you doubt that this is in the early tradition, Matthew 21 has Jesus uh, doing remarkable things in the temple, and the children are shouting out Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees tell them to shut up. And Jesus says, have you never read, out of the mouths of babes and children have you brought perfect praise? Where's that from? Psalm 8. When did the Jews use Psalm 8 particularly? 
at Passover because they regarded it as about the Exodus when the children sing the praises of God, the Song of Moses. In order to understand the New Testament, to soak yourself in the way Jews were reading the stuff at the time, you start seeing all these things. And the result of it is that the one who is humiliated and then exalted is the one who now replaces the temple. And Psalm 8 then joins up with Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is exalted so that all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. Matthew makes this a special theme that the humiliated Son of Man at the end of the Gospel, Matthew 28, he is now the Daniel 7 figure. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Um, And I've often said in preaching... uh, Amen. Amen. I've often said in preaching, we Western Christians are quite happy for Jesus to have all authority in heaven. We've hardly begun to think what it might mean that he already claims all authority on earth. So what I'm saying is exactly, I'm so glad you took us there because that sequence at the end of John 1 should have lined us up if we knew our business for the temple theology of 2 where Jesus is the true temple. The Son of Man is now the place the angels of God are ascending and descending. He is the one who joins heaven and earth together. And when we find Jesus, when we know Jesus, when we're incorporated into his humanity, uh, Paul talks about being in the Messiah, in Christo, then we become temple people by his spirit. And so it goes on. Okay, so I'll add in a rejoinder to some of this to tie it in with some of the things we've looked at before. By the way, if you've doubt at all the concept of the temple image of Jacob's ladder. The writer of the story of Jacob's ladder wants you to make no doubt at all about it because he has Jacob named that place Bethel. Bethel, Okay? Bethel is in Hebrew house of God. That is where that he does not want you to miss that. And then the other thing that I would point out is within this framework of John, we could go through the entire Gospel of John and do exactly what Tom has just done for us. But the one that we referenced last week, I think I referenced it, or maybe a week or two before, is where Jesus says, um, uh, 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 I am the the light of the world. Where he says that, uh, 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 in essence, he's the living water. Where we have those things, was it John John which which are you looking for? I am. It's it's the it's, no. it's got to be seven. It's at the feast of booths, so it's at seven well, on the last the, day the of the feast. Yeah. Jesus says, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." Yeah. And this we've it's got the stuff. interlude of the woman caught in adultery, but then we pick back up with this story where Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world." Those are the two big celebrations that happen at the temple. It's at the temple on the last day of Sukkot where the priest would take the water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out at the temple for it to flow out in the two different directions heading out for the world to indicate that from the temple will come forth water for humanity at some point when Messiah comes. It's at the temple on the last night of Sukkot where they would light the lights to keep it bright all night long because from the temple will come Okay, And then needless to say, we've got all the Abraham, Mount Moriah, all of that story from the temple. So how do you then read, if I may ask you, that very interesting verse where Jesus says, the one who believes in me, as the scripture says, this is John 7, 38, out of that person's heart will flow rivers of living water. 
because it's, it's, a, it's a standard problem. Uh, I have one of these Bibles that has cross-references. So when it says, as the scripture says, you look in the margin and you see what the cross-reference is. And this one just has a question mark. Or actually, it has a little Latin word, which means, where did that come from? Unde. Um, uh, because there is no passage in the Old Testament which actually says that in so many words. So I'd, I'd be fascinated to know how you... I, I, I know what answer I would give, but I... Well, I, I think there's a reference in Zechariah uh-huh. Um, uh, that I think Jesus is referencing in there. And if we take apart Zechariah, it's a marvelous, you know, it's that Hebrew word Zachar, uh-huh. which means to remember. Zachar Yah, Yahweh will yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Zechariah is a book with, that, that's laden heavily with prophetic words. And let me find the exact Zechariah passage. This was not pre-planned. I feel like I'm getting quizzed. It's 14.8. It's 14.8. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can at least say it's highlighted in my Bible. Yeah, How's yeah, that? absolutely. Very okay. good. Very good. Um, but but it wasn't that wasn't on where that I expected. Day, it. living waters yeah. shall flow out from Jerusalem, and that was the verse that was used at Sukkot as the basis for that uh, a ceremony where the priests would pour the living water. And so yeah. I think that that's Jesus is t- out yeah. of Scripture. He's tying it back. That's, that's I'm I'm so glad because I mean Zechariah is a very difficult book particularly the second half. If you've studied the Minor Prophets, so-called, I think you probably agree that Zechariah is one of the toughest just to get your head around. The the, the puzzle for us is that Jesus seems to have liked Zechariah. He he not only quotes it, he actually uses it as a a script for his street theater when he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's saying, guess what? Zechariah 9 is happening before your very eyes. And then he quotes several other passages from Zechariah as we go forward. But I think, I think, it's hard to prove this, but I think Zechariah 14 is itself looking back to the last chapters of Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel, you don't have a specific one line that says that. What you have instead is this extraordinary dreamlike sequence because the temple's been destroyed. Yahweh has abandoned the temple. That's why the people are in exile, etc. But the promise is that the temple will be rebuilt and that when the temple is rebuilt, then there will be a river of living water flowing out of the temple all the way down the hill so that it will even make the Dead Sea fresh. People will go fishing in the Dead Sea. If you've been to the Dead Sea, you know that the one thing you won't find in there is any fish. Um, and you don't want to drink it either or you, you'll be dead too. Um, and, and so I think it's a summary of the whole of Ezekiel. And I think Zechariah had already summarized that. And then Jesus is picking up that whole in a scriptural narrative. But here's the point. I preach this again and again when confirming people. Because when, when a bishop confirms people, you know, who know, we don't control the spirit. There's no, the spirit blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, etc. However, you say a special prayer for people who have confessed the faith and have been baptized, a special prayer that God will commission them by his spirit to serve his kingdom in the world. And one of the texts regularly read is that John 7 one. And I would say, notice, it doesn't say the one who believes in me into that person's heart. will. F-. I say, you've probably come here because you want the living water in your heart. That's fine, but this must not be the Dead Sea. The, the text says, out of that person's, you get it flowing in so that it may flow out. Otherwise, you get stagnant. And preachers among you will know, once you've got a theme like that, that that'll preach. That, that, this will work. Um, But I think the bigger picture, the bigger picture is of the church which Jesus sees happening through his death and resurrection in the Spirit being the people through whom the whole creation 
will be irrigated. The dead seas of the world will become fresh. That's just a wonderful image of the church, which then is highlighted in John 20, on the first day of the week in the evening, receive the Spirit, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So the most amazing, the way the Johannine ecclesiology works out of that. Fantastic. Well, if you have any doubt, read Zechariah 14 especially. Remember, Zechariah's name itself means Yahweh will remember. And then read 14 and you'll see that it talks about the Feast of Booths in the passage itself and it ends with the temple and the altar being provided and the fact that God provides in the house of the Lord, which Paul then understands to be ultimately the church and as the expression and the meeting place of God and humanity. Is that fair? Absolutely. It's Paul's new temple theology, which he takes for granted. And for many years I was expounding Paul and you hit this passage, you are the temple of the living God, or your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's just, a, just an image from Paul's background, because he was a Jew, so he had that sort of... Absolutely not. Paul is a first-century Jew who now believes Jesus is a Messiah. If he says you're the temple of the living God, then that means you as an individual and you as the church are the place where the living God wants heaven and earth to come together. C.S. Lewis has a line where he says, you, you have never met a mere mortal. You know, that, that actually we don't take ourselves seriously enough as who we genuinely are in Christ and by the Spirit. Okay, we, uh, we are out of time, but I would ask you one thing. We're going to start our study of Paul next week. Uh-huh. And um, uh, uh, do you have a, a word for us to look for in Paul? You've written on Paul exhaustively. Do you have a word for us to look for? Give us an encouragement of, why we should study the life of Paul, is there still more to be gained? There is always much, much more to be gained with Paul. And I think particularly we in the Western church and the Western evangelical traditions, Paul has been our guy. We've known what Paul does because Luther told us 500 years ago. And I want to say, yes, absolutely. But remember this, the 16th century reformers were trying to give biblical answers to medieval questions. Those were not Paul's questions. Okay, if those are our questions, we can find biblical answers for them. But Paul's own questions are much bigger. They include our questions, but they are huge. Paul's question is, what does it mean to say that God has now been faithful to the covenant and therefore to the creation? And what does it mean for us to be caught up in the middle of that? So beware of shrinking Paul simply into the question of, How can I get saved or how can I find a gracious God? That's not Paul's question. Paul's question is how can God find a a grace-filled people? Um, It's a a big question then about the whole cosmos. It's back to Genesis. Note how, I could go on all day, note how often Paul goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because for Paul, this is a vision of new creation exactly as in John. The, The better you get to know Paul and John, the more they join up. Final uh, tagline to whet your appetite for next Sunday. We're not starting, Paul, where you typically would start Paul. Having heard our discussion about temple theology, I think it's appropriate for you to know we're going to start our study of Paul with Paul going to the temple Uh, uh. where he gets arrested in Acts. And that's where we'll start the study, and then we'll go back and explore some other things. But I love, with you having fresh in your mind this temple discussion, to think about what Paul was thinking and his temple theology as he goes to the temple, gets ultimately arrested and all the rest. 
Um, you guys have been more than gracious. I know you're going to want to thank him with some applause, but hold on before you do, uh, um, Bishop, uh, ex-Bishop. Would you pronounce a blessing oh, over us in the sure. name of Jesus? Um, <clears throat> sure. I, when I do this, I usually tell people to stand, and it might be a good idea. Um, there the, was a, a blessing which I used regularly when I was in Durham, and I've often done since. <clears throat> May Almighty God make you faithful to his calling, cheerful in his service, and fruitful for his kingdom. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be upon you and through you with all those to whom he sends you, today and always. Amen. Amen. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you.